Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Jenny Schulich, the Associate Director of Audience Development here at San Francisco Ballet, and I'm your host for To The Point, the podcast that tells you all about San Francisco Ballet's season and performances. Today, our topic is Program 3, Dance Innovations. This program shows ballet in all of its registers, emotional, philosophical, and delightfully virtuosic. Featuring work by three choreographers, Edward Liang, Trey McIntyre, and Harold Lander, this program has a little something for everyone. Plus, of course, a world premiere, which is always fun. Today, we're going to talk a bit about these three ballets and these three choreographers, each quite different from one another, in order to give you some context to their creations, as well as talk a bit about the works themselves and their music. Finally, as always, we'll give you something to look for and to chat about later with your friends. Sound good? Then let's get to the point. The first ballet of the evening is Edward Liang's Emotionally Resonant The Infinite Ocean. This ballet was made in 2018 for San Francisco Ballet's Unbound Festival, and although it's been seen in both Washington, D.C. and London in the years since, this revival is a first for San Francisco. We're definitely glad it's back, as it was really a fan favorite when it premiered. But first, a bit about Edward Liang. Now the artistic director of Ballet Met, he's had a fascinating career training first here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'll let him tell you about it. I grew, well, I was born in Taipei, Taiwan, and uh, my family moved to the United States when I was five, and we settled in Marin County, California, uh, which is obviously right across the Golden Gate Bridge, and uh, my sister started uh, taking ballet classes, and um, my mother would drive us, and our housekeeper would drive us to um, ballet classes, and I was a bit um, of a naughty child, <laughs> and so to keep me um, not getting into any more trouble, uh, they enrolled me into the ballet classes so that uh, at least I was being supervised. <laughs> and uh, my sister and I also did uh, violin lessons, what well, we tried, and uh, we are both martial arts, um, competitive martial arts when we were young, uh, Korean martial art. Um, but ballet is what kept on bringing me back. I quit a couple times, but obviously I could never um, really let it go. Not only could Edward not let go of dance, but he actually went on to quite the career, training at the School of American Ballet, and then dancing for New York City Ballet, in the Broadway show Fosse, and then at Netherlands Dance Theater. If you aren't too familiar with dance styles, that might not sound like a really varied path, but it is. The School of American Ballet and New York City Ballet work in a particular style, influenced by 20th century choreographer George Balanchine. It's classical ballet, but it's pushed to extremes, technically and musically, often faster and bigger than what you'll see in other companies. Fosse, on the other hand, features, of course, choreography by Bob Fosse, as arranged by Anne Ranking. Fosse's work features a stylized jazz with turned-in legs, complex isolations, and a real attention to specificity and detail, in some ways the opposite of Balanchine's expansive classicism. And from Broadway, Edward went on to Netherlands Dance Theater. At the time that Edward was there, Netherlands Dance Theater really focused on the work of Czech choreographer Yuri Killian. Killian's work combines classical ballet and postmodern experiments to create a maximalist exploration of humanity. Again, kind of a far cry from either Balanchinian neoclassicism 
or Fossian jazz. It was at NDT, or Netherlands Dance Theater, that Edward first began to choreograph. Again, I'll turn it over to him to tell you all about it. My first, um, I guess, experience with choreography was when I was dancing with Netherlands Dance Theater um, 1, the main company. I just uh, finished guesting um, around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I finished the Broadway show Fosse, and um, I wasn't really quite sure if I was going to continue dancing or uh, what I wanted to do. But uh, while I was in Oslo, I met Paul Lightfoot, and I also got to meet Yuri Killian, and they asked me to audition for Netherlands Dance Theater. And there, it I was so inspired by all the house choreographers, everyone that we worked with, I was inspired by the dancers and how the organization and everybody that was a part of NDT pushed you to be as creative as possible and to think outside the box. So um, with a little bit of nudge, I, I tried my hand at a pot de for their sort of, um, it's a, it's a fundraiser slash um, showcase. So choreographers can choreograph small things. Dancers did as well. Um, it was pretty open, and uh, that's where I started. Edward brings all of these influences into the infinite ocean, creating a ballet that, while about the liminal space between life and death, is never maudlin, instead highlighting the connections between people that make it hard to let go. Edward describes it as about, quote, our desire to be seen and truly be seen and to be heard and to be acknowledged. The title came from a Facebook post that he saw that commented on a friend's death by saying, I'll see you on the other side of the infinite ocean. That idea of the infinite ocean carries through not only in the dancing, but also in the set, which was inspired by Olafur Eliasson's installation of the Tate Modern. And the music, which composer Oliver Davis wrote expressly for this ballet. In this ballet, you'll want to look for the two central pas de deux. They create a sense of drama in the work and suggest couples maybe at different points in their journeys to the afterlife. They are also incredibly, incredibly challenging. Although sometimes the challenge in ballet choreography is the attempt to make it look easy, and although sometimes the things that look the hardest are actually quite simple, here the sculptural shapes the dancers create are just as hard as they look. If the set is Eliasson-inspired, the choreography seems more influenced by Alexander Calder, the sculptor. The second ballet on this program is a world premiere by Trey McIntyre, beloved to San Francisco audiences for his 2018 work, Your Flesh Will Be a Great Poem. While that ballet was a meditation on love and on age, this one is taking on even bigger philosophical concepts, inspired by, well, the meaning of life. <laughs> But again, let's first talk about Trey himself. Trey is an all-American artist born in Kansas and trained at North Carolina School of the Arts and Houston Ballet Academy before joining Houston Ballet under the direction of Ben Stevenson. Officially, his path to becoming an in-demand choreographer began there when he became Houston Ballet's first choreographic associate. But really, it started earlier, and I'll let him tell you a bit about his early training. Uh, well, I'm from Wichita, Kansas, um, and uh, I was a super creative kid, and I was involved in theater uh, quite a bit. 
Uh, but I was also re- like much shorter and much wider. I was a heavy kid, and so I would go to dance auditions, like for musical theater, um, and didn't do that well. And so um, my mom basically put me in ballet class uh, so I could pull it together. And um, I didn't like it that much. Uh, it was very uh, rote and very it was very repetitive and boring and not the creative experience I thought it would be. But I think because I was a creative kid, um, I immediately went to what was the creation part of that and you know figured out okay somebody's making up choreography. So I just started making up my own stuff like really like when I was 11 years old and, and first started and. Um, um, <clears throat> I used to skip class a lot. Like my parents would drop me off, and I'd go next door and like get a Slurpee or something. And um, there was one day that I was in the parking lot teaching some steps I'd made up to some from some friends of mine, some other students. Um, and my teacher was watching me from the class that I was supposed to be in through the window. And so she came outside and asked me what I was doing. And uh, what I told her, you know, instead of me being in trouble, she said, "Well, why don't you come inside and teach this to the rest of the class?" Um, I thought that sounded pretty good, and that that little uh, that little bit of of creative and really helpful teaching kind of set me on a path from there. Like Edward, Trey eventually turned his sights toward artistic leadership in founding the Trey McIntyre Project in Boise, Idaho, which he ran for ten years. After a decade, though, Trey decided to expand his horizons, folding the company in order to work on photography and film and choreography on a freelance basis. He's become renowned for works that use pop music and a kind of loose movement vocabulary that feels almost like what you'd get if you blended ballet and contemporary dance. Ballets like Your Flesh Will Be a Great Poem, which we saw here. The Big Hunger is not that kind of ballet. This time around, Trey's working with classical music, and not just any classical music, but Sergei Prokofiev's Concerto No. 2, one of the most difficult pieces of the piano repertoire. This musical choice is both a departure and a return for Trey. Trey himself has a background in classical piano, and he knows how talented the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra is, so he thought this seemed like a good opportunity to try something new. But Trey's ballets are rarely solely about the music, although they are very musical, and in this case, he's also playing with some philosophical concepts. Specifically, he's thinking of a concept inspired by the philosophies of the Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert, which differentiate between the little hunger problems of the human world and the big hunger problems of existence or the meaning of life more generally. The design by Thomas Mika plays with the idea of an exit sign as a way to reference a symbol that is universally understood. As Trey said in an interview, quote, we all count on the sign in an emergency, but then, you know, a bomb goes off and the stairs aren't there anymore, or in 200 years, the stairs will crumble and that sign's light is going to go out and it'll be at the worst possible time. All of those things will fail us, end quote. Choreographically, the ballet is arranged around three pas de deux, each featuring a principal couple. These three sections and three couples each represent a different stage toward enlightenment. So notice how these relationships are distinct, how the sets change between sections, and how each couple moves and partners differently. Finally, we end the night with pure classical virtuosity. In the oldest ballet of the evening, Harold Lander's 1948 homage to classical ballet, Etudes. Harold Lander had a very different life than either Edward or Trey. Born in February of 1905 in Copenhagen, Denmark, Lander was an almost exact contemporary of George Balanchine, born in 1904. His father was a jeweler, he didn't come from a family of dancers, but his parents loved to dance, and so they sent him to dancing lessons with Christian Christensen, 
a dancer with the Royal Theater Ballet. Christensen thought that Lander had talent, and so Lander auditioned for the Royal Danish Theater Ballet School and was accepted. At 16, Lander joined the company as an apprentice. The school and company in that period were devoted almost exclusively to the preservation of the Bournonville technique and style, performing almost exclusively August Bournonville ballets from uh, the 19th century. But in 1925, that began to change when Mikhail Fokine of the Ballet Russe was invited to present a few of his works on the Royal Danish's stage. For Lander, this was a really seminal moment, and he ended up following Fokine to the United States in 1927 to continue his ballet training. In 1929, Lander returned to Denmark, bringing with him his new knowledge from these Russian teachers, and three years after his return, he was appointed artistic director of the ballet company. As artistic director, Lander had, well, quite a lot on his plate. He had to maintain the Bournonville repertoire, which he did by modernizing it, cutting down its length, and updating costumes and sets. He had to update the dancers' training regimen to allow them to take part in new ballets in the Russian style, which were coming out of the Ballet Russe, and he needed to create a new Danish repertoire for the company. He did all of the above, um, but his most famous ballet by far, the most famous original ballet by far, was Etudes, which he choreographed in 1948 toward the end of his time in Denmark. The idea for this ballet actually originally came not from Lander, but from comp composer, and guys, I'm not going to say this right, so you're going to have to listen to a bit of an interview later. I think um, our Danish guests will pronounce this better, but Nudej Riesier. Riesier was a close friend and longtime collaborator with Lander, and it was he who had the idea to orchestrate several of Carl Cherney's piano etudes for orchestra and to make a ballet. Lander wasn't sold on the idea at first, but then it came to him. It would be a ballet about training transformed into art. It would follow a girl's path from first steps to center stage and also encapsulate 300 years of ballet history following the evolution of style from the basic positions to modern-day virtuosity. No tall order at all. But as is often the case, this ballet went through various instantiations before it became the version that we know and love today. It really continued to kind of shift and morph over the next two decades of Lander's life. The original ballet was made largely on a student, Tony Peel, later Tony Lander, who, when she was 16, began to work closely with Lander and Riesier on their concept for this ballet. But while the central role of the ballerina would become Tony's signature part, starting with her debut nine months after the ballet's premiere, on the night Etudes debuted on the Royal Danish stage in January 1948, it was the former Mrs. Lander, Margot Lander, who stood center stage. The original sets featured a giant ballet studio full of mirrors with busts of ballet masters and choreographers scattered throughout. And the costumes were different as well. What are now white tutus were black, what are now black tutus were short skirts for the girls. But the bones of the ballet were there, and it was an immediate success. Lander continued to fiddle with the ballet over the next three years during his tenure in Denmark. He updated the ballet for Tony Lander and for a young up-and-comer named Eric Brune in 1951, rearranging some of the sections of the ballet. But the biggest change came when he moved to Paris later that year. Lander staged Etudes in Paris in the fall of 1952, and it was a bit of an uphill battle to get it on stage. First off, it almost wasn't approved at all, as ballets staged at the opera needed to have the music approved by the music staff, and this Riesier 
Carl Cherney, you know, thing was maybe not quite up to French standards. Second, once it was approved and right before the premiere, everything went wrong in the dress rehearsal. The bars collapsed, the sets didn't work, and the lighting was all wrong. Um, And the lighting in this ballet is really uh, crucial to making it work. And as a result, they ended up actually postponing the premiere for a week. But it wasn't all bad. And after that fateful dress rehearsal, Maurice Lehman, a French producer, suggested actually a change to the ending of the ballet. Originally, the ballet had ended with what's called the long diagonal, a kind of decrescendo before the curtain. But Lehman suggested that French audiences would want a more spectacular ending. And so the final sequence of big jumps was added at the end. And there was one more big change. Lander added in the romantic pas de deux while in Paris as an homage to Marie Taglioni and the romantic ballet. Since then, Etudes has become the most frequently performed Danish ballet and a key part of the Paris Opera Ballet's repertoire. As of 2004, which I realize now is 16 years out of date, but I don't have more recent numbers. So as of 2004, it had been performed 268 times by the Paris Opera Ballet. Other companies also quickly began to absorb etudes into their repertoires, including the London Festival Ballet, which we now know as the English National Ballet, and American Ballet Theatre, for which it also became a major showpiece. But its history was a bit more troubled in Denmark, and it wasn't performed at all between 1951 and 1962, when Lander returned to the uh, Royal Danish Ballet to restage it. It took until 1968, though, when the ballet division of Danish television, which who knew they had a ballet division, approached Lander about filming the ballet for broadcast. Um, And it was only then, really, that the ballet began to really enter back into the repertory of the Royal Danish Ballet. Lander agreed to do this film version and ended up working not technically with the Royal Danish, but rather with a variety of core members from the company, including Johnny Eliasson, who staged the ballet for St. Francisco Ballet. It's this version, this 1968 version, that Johnny uses when he stages the ballet now. Johnny and Harold's widow, Lise, were here last year, and they did a couple of interviews while they were around. And so I'm going to turn this uh, podcast over to them for a few minutes to tell you a bit more about the ballet and um, the process of restaging it. Harl Lander worked very closely with with the composer of this, which is Knud O. Rieser. Say that again. Knud O. Rieser. <laughs> That's the composer. Uh, and, and they worked closely together. Yeah. In, uh, so to the, the ballet evaluated like that gradually. Mm-hmm. Um, then Hald wanted some pieces in, and then Rieser composed them, and you know, it was a very, very close, close collaboration. And they actually started, or, or um, Harold Lander started with just piano studies by Czerny. And those of you who have been piano students and practiced those piano studies by Czerny understand the concept of they start simple, they get more and more complex, and that worked so well with the ballet. It's just like the ballet. It's, it started, it looks like it's easy. It's not. Uh, 
so it starts simple in a way, and then it 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 almost builds a little bit like a like a ballet class where we start hanging on to the bar, and then later on it becomes pas de bras, and it becomes little jumps, and it becomes turning sections, and it becomes dif- more and more difficult, and then you get into the jump sections where we start with what's called petit saut, small jumps, and then it it gradually grows. So it's like basically like a like a ballet class, how we build a ballet class in every morning, the dancers do every morning. So that's what it is. And it finishes, like Lisa said, with a huge crescendo in the end, an explosion. And uh, yeah, so that's sort of how I look at the ballet. Mm-hmm. And the actual movements that the dancers are doing mm-hmm. are anything that you would do in a ballet class. Sort of. No, you wouldn't want to miss, miss a ballet class if you want to do etudes. <laughs> but you, I heard you say that when you are staging the work, you always insist that you will teach the company classes. Yes. Explain that. Well, it's because it, it, it's, it's extraordinary particular in terms of timing, in terms of, uh, I wouldn't say music, musicality. Yes, it is for the ballerina, but for the company, it's more a question of rhythmicality, mm-hmm. that everybody understands the beat of the music because it's so particular. That's why when I get to a company and it's about to stage the atrium, I always ask to teach morning classes so they understand what I'm asking for uh, the next hour <laughs> after mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. So that's why I always want to teach for them to understand what I'm going to be asking for. So that pretty much sums it up. But when watching this ballet, you should keep an eye out for the central ballerina who flits in and out throughout the ballet, sometimes in a short classical tutu and sometimes in a longer romantic era one. And also look for the ways that the steps you see later in the ballet, the turns and jumps, relate to the earlier exercises you saw at the bar. It's a ballet about ballet, showing both how it evolves in the course of a class from bar to center and how it has evolved over 500 years of history. And that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to this season of To The Point, and meet me right back here for previews of the rest of the season's performances. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews and points of view lectures, you should go do that. You can find them on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. Hit subscribe, and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating and review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at SF Ballet. We'd love to hear from you, and your ratings and reviews help us to reach new and bigger audiences. Thank you so much for listening, and see you at the Opera House.